Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, The Masters, Art, Music, Film and Books, featuring Andrew Ford, Sebastian Smee and Peter Thompson in conversation with Geordie Williamson, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello there, everybody. In the closing hours of this gloriously sunny uh, Byron Bay Writers' Festival, it's been great to have you all weekend, and it's lovely to look out and see lots of familiar faces. I feel like we've been on a bit of a journey over the weekend, and I'll try not to repeat myself for the third or fourth or fifth time. Um, This session is a little bit complicated because we've been given the title The Masters, I just want to announce from the get-go that all of us were sitting in the green room and we feel quite uncomfortable with this title. (laughs) Backpedalling furiously. Yeah. For a start, um, Andrew Ford, to my right, who is a composer of renown in his own right, said, you know, I'm a practitioner, but I'm also an enthusiast who used broadcasting as a way of communicating my love of other people's uh, music as well. And Peter... To my left, Peter Thompson is a man who has been a teacher and a critic and a practitioner filmmaker in his own lights. Um, Seb and I have done some drawing classes together, um, <laughs> but we draw like Andrew Ford weeks. plays the piano. If you've read his <laughs> memoir, <laughs> The Memory of Music, you'll know what we mean. Um, I, I have tried to write a book which made me very much more sympathetic uh, towards the people who I'd been um, very critical towards in writing their books uh, for the many years beforehand. So we are people who um, are critics, but we are always those who are enthusiasts and subservient in many respects, and this might be something worth teasing out, to those works that we're, we're trying to admire, those, those folk that we are trying to celebrate and it should be said that I'm also conscious that we're four white middle-class blokes who have had an opportunity to take the platform and to have a voice and we should maintain a strong consciousness of the fact that space for other voices by others who might have different perspectives is the only way that any critical enterprise is any ever going to be of any value. So um, the fact that we're all here and tremendously smart and gifted people does not mean that there couldn't be 12 of us on stage and and a much more varied, varied crowd. Well said, Mm -hmm. well said. Mm -hmm. (coughs) All right, so what I want to do, let's cut through all the nonsense and just get down to talking about criticism. My sense is that we talk about criticism as if it's some kind of monolithic block. There's one way to respond, and you can use it across all cultural um, productions. But then I think about, and here I have to admit that Seb and I have been friends for many years, and as a hopeless young undergraduate, the already galactically talented Seb helped this young man to get his first gigs as a book reviewer. I'm not sure that's true, Joy, but anyway. (laughs) Um, He was precocious. Oh, galactic... (laughs) Galactically talented is yep, true. Well, that much is true. Uh, <laughs> but that uh, the way in which Seb and I respond to a book 
or to an artwork involve bringing to bear a different skill set. So I wanted to ask each of you, and I think I'll start with you, oh. because yours is the most sort of radically modern and other of, <laughs> the, of the art forms we're discussing today. What toolbox do you have and what tools are inside it when you come to look at a film and try and respond to it as best you can? Well, um, in my case, it was pretty specific because uh, I had a, a slot on a television program and um, it was light relief uh, in one sense. Uh, but I watched it religiously. It was fantastic. <laughs> we should also say that uh, uh, where I grew up in central western New South Wales, we had two channels, and I had no idea there was such a thing as criticism, but for the 25 years that you did do your Sunday program, you actually introduced me to the very idea it was possible to do such a thing. Mm. So, yeah, yes, and it I was light, but well, profound. I quarrel with the... Well, I, I question the word criticism because I think in Australia there's actually quite a long tradition of regarding criticism as uh, pejorative, as being, you know, to criticise something is to put it down. Uh, whereas actually in the English tradition of, uh, of literary criticism and art criticism, there's a, a long tradition of criticism as appreciation, analysis, positive aspect. And uh, certainly I regarded my little slot on television as an opportunity to perhaps broaden people's perspective about what might be attractive, what might be interesting and engaging. Because I, I, I actually believe very firmly that the films that really affect us are actually the films that upset us and kick us out of our comfort zone. But on commercial television, you don't, want, you don't get very far kicking people out of their comfort zone. It doesn't go down very well. So. So, um, and, and I also, I think, uh, I think a quarrel that we have is that I think you endorse the idea of criticism as uh, a, an evaluation of work, which, I, which I, uh, I concede that that's valid. I don't, I, I never felt that um, personally or as a society we, or as a community, we, were, we had reached a point where evaluation was actually appropriate or, or possible. That um, I think, um, I think as a community we're, we're rather immature, very immature, and I think that the first task is to engage with the work, uh, whether it's a painting or a piece of music or a book. It's to actually engage in it, it's to actually try to penetrate it. And we did have a, I did have a tutor at university who uh, gave us Yeats's uh, An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. And he handed it around and then said, what do you think? And we all said, oh, I think it's good. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it. And he said, really, that's not very important. How does it work? And that was a revelation. I've never forgotten that. That's you know, 50 years ago. And, um, and I still think that's the key thing, that... Um, I think reviewers, and we have a wonderful local reviewer, John Campbell, I think reviewers fulfil a function in terms of our daily lives that we've, we have a certain amount of time and money to spend and we want some sort of guidance about where to go. But, um, but that's a very limited, actually a very limited thing. And, uh, uh, yeah, so does that 
explain? Yeah, it does. And while you were talking, I was thinking about many years of listening to Andrew on Radio National and the, mm. the joy and the education that's been and the way in which you seem to be able to manage, magically balance uh, the fact that all of us can enjoy music. We all know what we like, but the way it falls on the ear is one that uh, we very few of us had the, the vocabulary to describe. And you it seems to me, operated an interface where you're trying to introduce us to a, a, a kind of vocabulary to describe the love that we intuitively have for the music that you celebrate. Well, of course, there is a, a vocabulary of music, and it's to do with things like um, first inversions and diminished chords and hemiolas and isorhythm and all of these words that hardly anybody understands apart from musicians and not all of them actually um so there's that and and and, and as soon as you start using those words you may be talking very specifically about the music which is which is important to do um but nevertheless you've lost everybody so you have to try to find a way of, of speaking about the music and speaking technically about the music without recourse to that jargon which might be precise and might be a good form of shorthand uh, for people who are in the club uh, but alienates everybody else uh, and it's not easy and ultimately as I was saying yesterday you 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 fail because music will not go into words um, no matter how much mm -hmm. you try. Uh, and so I, I, I think, I mean, as, as a, the presenter of the music show or if I'm writing a book, I have to accept right at the beginning that I am going to fail each time. But the attempt is always interesting and the attempt, mm -hmm. I think, can bring you and your listeners or readers closer to the music. And when all said and done, the most important bit of any writing about music, and I'm, I imagine this is true of all critical writing, is to send the reader or the listener back to the music, because that's where the answers are. And I, I, and I think that uh, it can be very frustrating, of course, if you, you start reading a book on music and after half a page you've got to put it down and go and listen to something. But that's really how... <laughs> a book on music should work, I think. Um, and it's a little bit easier now, I suppose, in that most of the pieces of music that I refer to in my books are on YouTube. So you don't <laughs> actually have to, you know, go out and buy a CD. You can just dial it up. So it makes things a bit quicker. But that, I think, is the acid test of, of, of criticism, that the, the, the reader or the listener goes off to make up their own mind and what you do as a, as a I, do, I, I don't like this word critic either but I'll, I'll use it um, what you do as a critic is to open the thing up to, to perhaps offer some context some perspective to mm. use Peter's word mm. but I, I agree very much with Peter that, that one's own likes and dislikes are, are of no interest to anybody else uh, what's important is to try to show why something is, is worth listening to and then mm. other people can make up their minds whether they like it or not. 
<laughs> what uh, what people may not know about uh, Seb Smee's criticism is he's perfectly uh, uh, brilliant at literary criticism as well. And, and indeed, for many years in Britain's Spectator magazine, he would review books. So it's quite interesting, I think, to ask you, Sebi, uh, how, how you would approach a book review as opposed to, say, a gallery review or a particular one of your individual picture reviews that you do for the Boston Globe regularly. Mm. Do you think your way into your response differently according to the the, the art form you're engaging with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all good mulch, isn't it? Everything sort of feeds into everything else. And, and, and I mean, I remember actually being at a gallery with Geordie, a uh, commercial gallery in Sydney, Martin Brown Fine Art, I think it was, and standing with him looking at, at uh, these photographs by, I think, an American called Adam, Adam Fuss. Do you remember that? Were, and, and it was interesting because he's sort of, you know, this 19th century style of photography being... Uh, a, a, adopted by a, a very 21st century artist. And we were wondering about that. Why, why is he doing this? What's going on here? And we talked, I mean, I stole all of Geordie's idea in the review I subsequently wrote. I, I still feel bad about that, Geordie, <laughs> sorry. But, um, but, you know, one of the analogies that came up was that, you know, uh, a photograph is a bit like playing a piano because, you know, you, 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 you strike the note uh, you strike the key and you know which note's going to come out. Whereas painting could be likened a little bit to playing the violin, where you sort of have to find the note, uh, you know, and, and in that sense there's more of a creative element to it, and yet they're both different and interesting in their own ways. We just stood there talking about this kind of stuff, uh, and it, it was so productive to me, it was so much fun, and there I was standing next to a friend talking about stuff that I cared about. And, and for me, I suppose... I agree with, with you guys very much that, that you want to talk about how stuff, how something works and, and the mechanics of it. But I also find that whether you like it or not matters a lot, you know, and, and in, in many ways I like to think of myself as a fan, you know, someone who wants to, you know, who wants to share what he's just looked at. Um, and uh, it's, it's a funny thing, you, you know, you talk around stuff, you're right, you can't find the words for the most meaningful, the richest experiences. Um, and, and yes, you just simply can't find correct words, although you do a great job of it for, for music or, or, or for film because, or for art because they're different media. But in a, in a funny sort of way, you, you can talk around it and define the experience by talking around it as a, as a sort of absence almost. And then I'm also interested in the way in which, you know, the most moving experiences when, when we look at art or see film or listen to music are often the ones that you they're not only the hardest to talk about, but they're the ones you, you least want to talk about. You know, you want to kind of hold it close. Um, mm. And that is something I've been thinking a lot about this year, and it, it, it's an awkward position for a critic to be in. You, you, you almost don't want to share the thing that you find has been the most moving. And yet, after a while, you can't help yourself. And you, I mean, I've been reading these novels of, of Rachel Cusk recently, Outline and Transit, which I just think is so incredible. And... Uh, I just, you know, I've already been talking to Geordie about them. I can't stop talking to all my friends and recommending them. And yet, there's something about describing a really deep and meaningful aesthetic experience that can sort of bring it down in the world. Um, it, it, it's an odd, it's an odd thing. But no, I, I think of myself as mostly a fan. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that there is a question of the exigencies of your situation. So. What Peter's describing is a situation in which he is the front person for film 
in Australian television over a long period of time and there were certain commercial imperatives. And I imagine what you're saying is there's probably a ghost canon of films that you would have loved to have have spoken about during that period, yeah, but, but were, were perhaps um, uh, obliged to move more to the centre. Mm. I also think of someone like Victor Sordon Pritchett, a wonderful short story writer and novelist and, and critic in the, the sort of mid-century UK. And he got to World War II, he was on the home front, there was no paper to print books, there was no publishing industry, everyone was off fighting the war. So what did he do? He said, well, I'll go back to the beginning of the novel and I'll start re-reviewing the classics of English, European, South American and world literature. And we're so blessed that he laboured under those restrictions because that criticism is some of the best literary criticism of the 20th century. Mm. But you're lucky, Andrew, I think, because what we're saying is you have a medium that you, your enthusiasm or your criticism works through that is amenable to the kind of illustrative activity. So you can talk, and then you can have the music, and the two play off one another. Yeah, and, and it's, it's one, of, one of the things that uh, interests me about the music show is that we've realised over, well, it's been going for 20, I forget now, 26, 26, 27 years, I've been doing it for 22. We've realised that in, the, in that time that the, the segments that people respond to most are the most technical. Hmm. And it's a bit counterintuitive. You would think, given that you know, the listenership for Radio National is not a specialist music listenership, um, that, that, that you might scare people off if you got technical. But it's, it's exactly the opposite. And, and, and the, the bits they especially like, the listeners, are when you've got somebody at a piano who can take you through uh, the harmonic structure of a song, say, uh, or, or, or show how um, Barrel House uh, piano from New Orleans works and the patterns that are involved, or is sitting uh, in front of a sitar and can demonstrate a particular raga, and, and how how the the the, the, mo the melody comes out of the scale, something like that, and in, and even use terms like diminished chords and iso rhythm, and and show what they are, and say a diminished chord like this, and you plonk it down, and people who are listening at home go, oh right. That's a diminished chord. Now, they don't really know what a diminished chord is still, but they've heard it, and they know it's kind of a bit weird, and, 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 and they sort of get the hang of it. And the music show is based on the science show. I don't know whether you realise that. It, the science show had been going for about 15 years, I think, when the music show came along. And, and I wasn't there at the time, but the producers who invented the music show listened to uh, Robin on the science show, listened to him talking quite technically about science and said, well, we should be able to do this about music. And I listened to the science show and I think I understand, but I don't really, because um, I'm not very good at science. But when I listen to the science show, I sort of do, I sort of follow because of the examples. And I think it's very similar with the music show. People think they get it. And really, that's quite important because it means they'll go and listen again. But when we talk about the advantages of the particular medium, 
uh, through which your criticism moves. Peter, I think back to your many years of criticism and the way that you would track between illustrative moments from a mm. film and then your responses. But, uh, I mean, I've worked between print and radio, and when I'm writing in print, if I want to put the boot in, I can, and I write the sentences and I arrange them and I try and balance the criticism with praise and what have you. When I'm on radio, I don't feel that the critical... Um, position is necessarily as helpful. It feels more intimate. It feels like I must be more affirmative. When you're working within a medium like television, does that affect the kind of criticism that you're trying to produce? Mm, possibly. Um, Peter Bogdanovich, who was a very fine critic before he became a filmmaker, uh, said that if you didn't respond positively to a film, you had no business talking about it. And I always thought that that was very wise. And um, yeah, so uh, I, uh, I virtually never put the boot in because I don't think it's appropriate. And there was another, uh, another example is that if you're talking about restaurants to friends, talking about uh, if they say, where would you say, where do you recommend we go? You don't talk about the restaurants that you don't recommend. You talk about the ones you do recommend. You say, try this, try that. But don't um, we all love those those scathing restaurant reviews? I find that more than anything, almost yeah, people well, love Leo to read Schofield it. Yeah, well, Leo got himself into terrible trouble <laughs> criticising right. a restaurant right. in Sydney, and they sued him. Yeah, um, yeah, that was the end and of criticism at Fairfax, I think. Uh, A.A. Gill used to, you know, do it superbly, didn't he? So th what is that, though? I mean, we, we have this sort of desire sometimes to read these scathing things. Um, yeah, look, I think... Uh, I, I, I do believe that, uh, that uh, venomous, venomous uh, or ho hostile venomous crits sell. You know, it, mm. it, it, people love it. People, mm. And, in fact, my producer quite often said, why don't you put the boot in occasionally? And, and I said, no, nah, won't... Uh, but he was very keen for me to put the boot in. Yeah. Uh, various yeah. producers. Auden said you can't review a bad book without showing off. <laughs> right. What about yeah. you, Geordie? I mean, you've, you've written uh, some negative reviews, as of I, probably not as many as I have. But do you, do you sort of feel... I feel as I get older, I'm, I feel less inclined to do it. So I think there was an element when I was younger of, yeah, there's a, there's a showing off aspect to it. And yet it also feels necessary in the sense that it's part of the job description of being a critic. Um, did, I mean, did, have you sort of evolved in your thinking about it? Yeah, I was asked about it once by someone writing an essay for the ABR and I said it's like, um, it's the, the, the hatchet job, as we call, you know, a, a highly critical book review, is the literary equivalent of a Big Mac. There's a big salt and sugar hit but you feel faintly nauseous afterwards. Hmm. So, I mean, that kind of attack, and I think that flows into what, what Auden's saying. What you're doing is you're performing your superiority to the text, and we've all looked at a review and thought, you know, aren't you just being fancy treading that poor bloody book into the ground? Hmm. There is legitimate grounds for strong criticism. And I think of, uh, I mean, my, my area is Australian literature, and this is something that I want to talk to all of you about. But there's a question about the way that I will respond to an American or a British or an, a novel in translation from Eastern Europe. And if I feel that it is poor, I will say so in no uncertain terms. And it may be that sense of safety that it's unlikely that that author is going to come and find me at Byron Bay <laughs> Green Room <laughs> and corner me. 
But it's also the case that I feel that these are global capitals of culture where there are standards of criticism, uh, uh, achievement, that you can go in f firmly, not unkindly, but firmly. Whereas when I'm dealing with Australian texts, I have this sense of what decision am I going to make? This is a fragile ecosystem. I'm doing all I can to encourage the growth of Australian literature um, with all of its problematic nature, its questions of exclusion and inclusion and past and present and future. But if I'm doing that, if I'm self-peddling, am I grading our national literature on a curve? Am I showing the soft bigotry of low expectations? And I mean, Seb, to throw the question back to you, you're recently, and well, I mean recently, uh, it, it, over the last decade, moved from a role as a national art critic with the National Broadsheet to being a US-based critic whose remit is as broad as, you know, all of those great works of art that, that are, are in close proximity. Do you now have a sense of the way that you responded to Australian art and to art more generally? Look, I think just as your, as your knowledge deepens, um, you hopefully become better. And, you know, I suppose the difference that I notice between being an art critic here and being one over there is here, if I say uh, I'm an art critic when someone says, what do you do? Um, and I always feel faintly embarrassed about it anyway, whether I'm in Boston or here. But they say, uh, did you, hang on, did you say arts critic? And, and they almost seem to think, what an unimaginably specific thing to be doing, an, an art critic. Um, that's the feeling here sometimes. Um, whereas I think I, I feel myself to be an absurd generalist. I mean, one week I'm writing about you know, Japanese textiles in the 18th century, the next it's architecture, the next it's uh, painting from the 19th century, the next it's an incredible work of video art uh, by an artist who's just coming through and no one's heard of, doing unimaginable things. Uh, you know, I remember when I got a job when I moved to London at the art newspaper, I was asked to put together a supplement, a sort of year in review supplement, and the editors divided the art world up into 20 categories. Uh, so it was contemporary art, um, uh, but also, um, arms and armour, uh, textiles and carpets, um, <laughs> on and on and on. I mean, just such a broad field. And I had to speak to a scholar and a dealer in each of these 20 fields and ask them what were the biggest events of this year, the most important publications, the biggest events on the market and the biggest exhibitions. And you realise that there are these people who have made these areas, you know, their lifelong specialty. And to them, they seem incredibly broad, you know. So uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that, y y you know, you, it is a huge privilege to sort of be able to sort of skirt around the surface of some of these really deep, wonderful subjects and to realise how broad it is. I mean, it's really the subject is the stuff people have made over, over centuries and millennia um, with a focus usually on what's going on now, which is what I find incredibly exciting. But it's wonderful to reach back as well and to, uh, and to sense that breadth. I really want to know what was big in arms and armoury in uh, <laughs> 2007. But I think it's more important to actually ask Andrew, because Andrew's British-born, Australian-based composer. You have, as far as I can see, that's magnificently sort of binocular view, where you're very consciously bringing on Australian performers and composers and musicians 
uh, and yet you probably refer um, more broadly than any of us in terms, of, except for Peter, to, to in terms of a, a kind of world project in terms of your particular cultural field. Yeah, I, well, uh, maybe. I think one of the things that you do, though, is, as, I, as I said before, is to provide context. Um, and so the wider your field, the more context you can provide. I, mean, I think one of the things it, that is important when, when there's a new piece of music or film or painting or novel or whatever it is, it, is to be able to place it in w w alongside other works that are like it or maybe not like it to see how it fits in or doesn't mm. fit in because that's how you can begin to well to begin to have a conversation about it to see you see what it's made up of and see how the component parts come together and how the whole thing relates to other you know you use the word ecosystem and and and, and all works of art, I suppose, are part of an ecosystem. They, that everything is related to everything else, and it's very hard to come up with something which is so completely original that it has no frame of reference. And I think one of the one of the critics' jobs is to try to provide a frame of reference so that we mm. can better understand it. But, but again, I, I mean, I, I mean, people sometimes say, "How can I be so enthusiastic about every piece of music or every guest on the music show?" and, and the answer is that I'm actually not. Uh, I don't like every piece of music that I play, but I really don't think, as I said, that my likes or dislikes are any business of yours, <laughs> because I, I don't think you would find them interesting. Um, and and the other thing, you know, any more than you would care whether I like anchovies. <laughs> uh, it's not important. Um, but if you can think of something interesting to say on the subject of anchovies, then that could be in, that could be important. Who knows? So, so, so there's, there's that as well. <laughs> I go to the movie sometimes with an old friend who's a filmmaker, and I sit there and I, I, I am absorbed by this beautiful fantasy uh, uh, unfolding in images, and I come out and I say, oh, that was so, that was, oh. And he said, look, decent cinematographer, that was a shitty editor, uh, that actor... <laughs> utterly hopeless and I'm his technical apparatus defeats me my my enthusiasm I, mm. are we in danger I mean I moved into this field because if I if if I wasn't a critic I would be stopping people in the street and grabbing their forearms <laughs> slightly too tightly and say have you read this <laughs> uh, do we run the risk as professional enthusiasts of having a kind of technical knowledge which draws us away from the original passion we held yeah, for the media. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with Andrew, absolutely. I think context is so important. And we've, we've now got this awful word, contextualise, which I detest. Anyway, context, I think, is vital. But in terms of going to the movies with your friend, I think you're on the right track and your friend's on the wrong track. And I was dubbing a film of mine a long time ago and uh, the the uh, the um, master of the controls was saying, "Oh, we had a film in here last week. It's the best Australian film I've ever seen. It's going to be an absolute smash." Well, it sank without trace. Hmm. But he thought it was technically superb. Well, really, uh, I think uh, 
being involved in something as technical as film can simply blind you to the fact that people don't really care that much about technical things. Uh, uh, there's a there's a film, The Revenant, with uh, which uh, which um, what's his name got the Academy Award for? Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, DiCaprio got the Academy Award and for. The and I think uh, it's an extraordinary film. And um, I think uh, the the stunt the stunt people should have got the Academy Award, not not Leonardo. But anyway, that's another <laughs> issue. But it is uh, the cinematography is totally revolutionary. The cinematographer, whose name I can't pronounce, has won three Academy Awards in a row, and uh, it's transformed cinema. But I think for for uh, as audience, it's really not a, it's not important the the technical breakthroughs that are being made. It's whether the film speaks to you emotionally or not. Mm. Mm. Seb, when I've read your pieces, and they're always exquisite, but when they really move me. And there's a piece I included in the 2015 Best Australian Essays. It opens the, the project. And it, it's a, a response um, to um, a Goya exhibition in Boston, which then moves immediately to responding to the Lint Cafe siege, um, where both of us lost a family friend that day. And it seemed to me that that was one of those moments where aesthetics and politics and personal feeling merged seamlessly. Mm. Is the role of the critic to be the one who simply responds to the, the beauty, in inverted commas, of a particular cultural production? Are you exceeding your remit when you write these essays? Or is that really what we're aiming at for the moment where the artwork does things beyond, it exceeds its own borders mm. and the act of criticism in response. I don't think there's one thing that, that, that a critic is, is trying to do uh, if he or she is doing uh, the job well. And, and, and so every, it just ha you know, every new thing um, takes on its own import. And uh, what you're asking about just makes me think about uh, something, I think, Gertrude Stein talked to. I mean, we, we live in a world where, where we're sort of obsessed with identity, the idea of identity. But to have an identity implies having something that is against your identity. You define an identity against something that, that, that you are not. Um, and Gertrude Stein, I think, talked about this idea of entity. And I think when we respond to art, there is this possibility of, 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 of entity. And, I, you know, Peter Sheldahl, the art critic at The New Yorker, spoke a lot about the dilemma you face as a critic about which pronoun to use. So, do you write I, 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 I thought this, I went into the show, I thought this and I had this response, or do you rather say you? It's a sort of rhetorical gimmick, isn't it, to say you walk into the show and ahead of you you see this. But it's, it's quite useful sometimes to use you. When you use we, it's a bit presumptuous, and yet, and so I avoid it, and yet it is that sense of a we I think that you're often trying to grope towards. Sheldahl talked about, um, you know, occasionally trying to hopscotch from a you and an I to a we, um, <laughs> and and I thought that was such a beautiful way to put it because it was like you and I standing in that gallery talking about what what we were looking at, and y you do somehow want to share this thing that you've either been a fan of or you're perplexed by or or whatever, 
and occasionally art uh, you know can extend into a big we uh, and I think some artists do that incredibly well don't they Goya is one of them and uh, uh, it just happened that this magnificent exhibition uh, of, of Goya was on at the MFA at the time that I got that terrible news but yeah it's it's tough because it's always ephemeral that we is that entity if you like is is always ephemeral and yet it's sort of the main reason I feel I, I'm in it. Um, I, I sort of somehow want to serve that, that idea, that possibility. Mm. Um, because I know that my art love has been born of a, a sort of series of epiphanies, experiences that I, I, I can sort of name, you know, that, that just something happens uh, in an exhibition. Uh, might have been a, a work of video art, it might have been an, a, a painting or a whole show, but it just changed my world somehow. It moved my heart off the peg it was on to, to somewhere else. And uh, somehow I need to get my head around it and share it and get to that point of sharing it. Can I, and, uh, can I pick, pick, pick up on that? Because uh, in a way, what you were talking about is, 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 is what my, my books, my latest books about. And, and um, it's the way in which art, or in this case music, works in our lives. Mm. And I, and music I, does it so powerfully. Well, yeah. music, yeah, yeah, music does it very powerfully and, and almost unaccountably because we can't talk about um, a, a, a Beethoven sonata in the way we can talk about a Goya painting because we can't mm. say, you know, what, what is it? Mm. It's a Beethoven sonata. Mm. Um, so, so it's it's harder to talk about, uh, and it it uh, uh, it sort of bypasses reason mm. uh, and and goes in here, and then we carry it around with us, mm. uh, maybe for the rest of our lives, and we maybe keep encountering that piece of music, either on purpose or accidentally. And it becomes uh, part of our interior it life. It becomes uh, part of our yeah. interior life. And we become part of the music as well, in right. a curious sort of way. Mm. But what, what's been interesting to me, and this is, comes back to what you were saying, it, it, I'm sure you must have had this response. The response I've had to, to the book since it came out only a few weeks ago is that the people who've read it, have, have, I've, it's, a, it's a sort of memoir, the book, and, and, I, and I write about my musical experiences particularly early ones, because the early ones are the formative ones, and people who've read the book, uh, friends and strangers, keep coming up to me to tell me about their musical experiences, their formative musical experiences, which is sort of what I expected, mm. I must say, that, that the book would provoke uh, people to, to go back into their own memories of music. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you must have got some feedback like that to your essay with people talking about how, if not that particular painting, at least works of art had made them feel and, and had affected their lives and spoken to something quite specific in their lives. Right, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it is this deeply personal thing which we need to hold close and keep protected almost from others, and yet it's something that we, at the same time, paradoxically, I guess, have this incredibly strong impulse to share. So mm. it doesn't surprise me that, that, that people have had that response. That, uh, I can't wait to read it myself. And it was both yeah. a confronting book for me to write and also the easiest yeah. book I've ever written. <laughs> right. Jody I, Jody, I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, because you said, do we, uh, in a sense, do we soft pedal on the local material? And, um, and I think that throws open something that I'd certainly like to raise for the audience, which is that um, where, does, where does film, uh, and you've written 
magnificently about literature and 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 I could go on. Uh, but where does film sit into a, into our community in terms of where we are and and what our culture is? And um, and I think that if you talked about Australian film culture, you could say this. There can't be much wrong with a film culture that produces lion, mm. hmm. or if you like a, another film, you could. If your tastes are different, you'd say Mad Max Four, which are celebrated internationally. Um, and uh, we've had um, the the Australian film renaissance, which is a, one of our great unexamined assumptions, uh, where we produce, you know, Sunday Too Far Away and Picnic at Hanging Rock and and My Brilliant Career and all these films, which are. Uh, which we're very proud of. Um, and I think it's really interesting that we're so ready as Australians to congratulate ourselves on how wonderful we are. And you've written about this very powerfully, uh, this, this long, the long-standing tendency of Australians to pat each other on the back and say how wonderful we are. Um, and uh, what I think is interesting about that is why is this mindset why do we have this mindset when, in fact, creativity and expression are part of our DNA? You know, if you listen to bird song or whale song, which is very similar, it's creative. Uh, children playing, animals playing are creative. creative. Creativity is part of what we are. Why are we surprised by it? And, and in fact, um, Richard Feidler was saying yesterday that, um, that uh, Trump said, you know, it's amazing. There are so many people in, in, in Indonesia. And did you know, they're actually Muslim. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and it, we're a bit like that with creativity in Australia. It's like, you know, we, we actually make films. Aren't we wonderful? Of course we make films. Mm. Of course we do this stuff. And we should, uh, we should move on and say, uh, and I don't think we should compare ourselves, but nevertheless, I think it's very important to understand that we're not the only people dealing with these issues. And I was talking to the wonderful Barry Jones earlier and saying that the French, we've, we've actually fallen into, I think, a very destructive trap, which is thinking that, um, that the measure of anything is its popularity or its monetary value. So, Really, the the, mar the arbiter for film is box office, and we we all fall into this. We say, yes, well, I saw a good film. It was actually very popular. It made a lot of money. We've we've actually monetized, we've monetized art in a way which is tragic. And you write about um, the 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 way that um, uh, Freud and 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 um, Bacon Freud and Bacon's value went up. I mean, it, art is real estate. What is this about? Mm. The French, uh, and, and uh, as I was saying to Barry earlier, um, Toscan de Plantier, who's one of the great executives of Gaumont and one of these wonderfully kind of Renaissance figures in France, said that the French film industry has been in crisis since the 18th century. <laughs> so, you know, things, <laughs> thing, things do not go well in France. However, they have been absolutely determined to separate art and commerce. And they're very generous to commerce. If somebody makes a successful, a commercially successful film, they're awarded. But the French are absolutely rigid about this, that art cannot be measured in monetary terms. It's something else. And uh, the other great 
stride that they made, which we completely failed to do in Australia and have failed up to this point, is to make art cinema available to everybody. So there is a huge, uh, there's a whole uh, very uh, long-standing program in France to support art house cinema. Geordie, how do you think of those sorts of issues in terms of Australian literature? I mean, you, you've written so much about it, but, you know, those questions and, and the question of sort of grading on a curve and so on, I mean, uh, I mean, Geordie is the, is the best read person I know by a long shot. And, of course, you read <laughs> everything. Oh, Barry yeah. sitting in the front row. Oh, sorry, we've got a bit of competition. Maybe, maybe Barry Jones and Geordie should have a... Yeah, but anyway. Barry Jones uh, yeah, is the best read But, I mean, person. what I mean is you, you, you read broadly internationally, it's, uh, you know, as well as deeply uh, and broadly in Australia as well. Right. Well, what I would say is that Auslit makes no money. So um, that's, that kind of releases us from some degree from the marketplace. But as a publisher, I know that we are, in essence, uh, a, 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 you know, taking part in a capitalist system, and that's how I've got to try and balance, as a publisher, the competing prerogatives. But I've become quite a hippie at this point. I don't know how many of you have read Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, but in this book, this wonderful anthropologist and, and scholar and, and editor of, of Thoreau, puts forward this suggestion. When you buy your BMW and you take it out of the lot, it decreases by value by a third, just by taking it out onto the street. So, but when you've had your 4,000th production of Hamlet, how much more valuable is that cultural artefact? So he concludes that literature or film or music or art is uneasily occupies, and to a degree which, when I read Seb, I realise that it sort of deforms and violates the very thing that he's trying to celebrate, um, that it sits uneasily because it really partakes of a gift economy. And the gift economy is the one that, as critics, we are trying to transmit our enthusiasms to try and draw together all of the strands um, with some technical expertise which we use as tactically as we can to try and balance enthusiasm with the reason why we're enthusiastic. And that operates outside of those systems. I mean, we, we, we may get paid our shekel to review or broadcast or what have you, but in essence what we're doing is we're pondering the mystery and it is those of you who read and respond or listen and respond, or watch and respond, who are part of that community. That's got nothing to do with the marketplace. Mm. Andrew, and that's yeah. where the survival mm. is, I guess. Mm. Mm. Andrew deplores in his book the term music industry. And I deplore the idea of a film industry. I think it's one of the, one of the tragedies, really, but one of the small, um, uh, one of the small tragedies uh, you know, that we face is that we you know, we invariably talk about the film industry as if it's an industry, uh, and um, and I think it's I think it's uh, it's a terrible thing because it turns art into a commodity and monetizes it. And as you say, it operates outside that. I or think should. It should. We should absolutely. It's the imperative that counts. Um, uh, I've been reminded that it's ten minutes, um, so mm -hmm. it would be lovely if any of you had a question of any of the good people here. There's a lady at the back already raising her hand. Are there mics going around? Yes. 
Or you can shout. Yes. No. No. <laughs> Hi, my name's Janelle. Um, I'm local Lismore. I am a radio critic on um, local community radio. And in doing so, I did some research about women in the industry, um, the creative industries, especially art, music, and film. And it's generally that it's at least a quarter or under a third um, women get as much um, kudos or, uh, you know, influence. So, and as critics, you have a lot of influence over this. So it's a two-part question coming off of um, another uh, talk that happened today. Uh, as critics, do you feel responsible to do something about this? And if so, what are you going to do? Can I, I, I'm happy to go with that first. Thank you for the, for the, for the question. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm someone who's just written a book about, about eight male artists. So, um, and yet, you know, they were there in the past, my job as a critic at the Boston Globe is, is to uh, write a lot about contemporary art as, as well as other stuff. And, um, you know, I find that I'm writing at least 50% about women artists when, they can, when it's contemporary art that I'm writing about. And I don't take any particular credit for that because what's going on is that the institutions are, are leading the way. Um, you know, they are showing contemporary women artists more than ever before. Um, the ICA, the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, um, uh, is also, it's become a collecting museum um, just in the last uh, 10 or so years. And it, it collects, um, it doesn't collect exclusively women, but, but one of the main don uh, donors to the collection um, uh, is a woman called Barbara Lee, who has a, a very famous collection of just women. And she's been giving uh, that collection to the ICA. So, you know, more than half of the solo shows they put on and, and uh, well over half of the group shows um, are all women artists. And it's the same with all the other college museums, the big museums like the Museum of Fine Arts and so on. I think they're all more and more conscious of this, as they should be. Um, and because there's just a huge amount of correcting to do. Um, there's no doubt about it. In my uh, line of work as a composer, um, three of the most important colleagues uh, that I have, contemporaries, are women, uh, uh, Mary Finster, Lisa Lim, and Elena Katz-Chernin. They're three of the most successful um, Australian composers that there are. And actually, Australia's always been quite good at producing uh, female composers, not so good at, at actually giving them work or performances, but but it's, it's, it's easy to name quite a lot of uh, Australian composers, whereas in some other countries, um, female composers have been, and still are, practically invisible. Um, but if I put my radio hat on, um, what we do at the music show, and I actually, I actually don't choose the guests or the music, come to that, um, I, I, I just do the talking. Um, what we do is, is, is try to give as much time to uh, women as men, and particularly, again, composers. And I'm under, sometimes under pressure to ask the question about, you know, so you're a woman. <laughs> and, and I really, really resist it. And my, my producers, who are both women, and I sometimes argue about this, and, I, and my line is that every time we ask that question, we make it seem a bit odd that 
a woman should be a composer. You know, it's a bit like a dog walking on its hind legs, isn't it? Isn't there, was it John Knox who talked about? No, it's Sam, Sam Johnson. Samuel Johnson, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Geordie Ge- was a split second ahead of Barry. <laughs> but only a split second. Um, but I would, ra- I, would ra- I would rather ignore that aspect of things and, and make it a normal thing. But, of course, women compose music and... What's interesting here is the music. Look, um, uh, the phenomenon in in Australian literature over the past uh, decade has been the arrival of the the Stella um, Prize. I've been a judge and an ambassador for the prize, and it's made me think because there is an accompanying count that they do each year run by two fantastic academics, Julianne Lamond um, and someone whose name will come back to me, Mel... Um, anyway, uh, and what they've been showing me is the degree to which over the years that I was a weekly book reviewer, that um, the amount of mail books that mail reviewers were actually reviewing in the pages of Australian journals and magazines was um, out of all proportion to the actual publication balance. So when I came to write my first book, The Burning Library, which was on neglected figures in Australian literature, Um, I made a conscious decision that this should be a case of um, gender parity. And the strange thing about assembling the names was it was really easy to find neglected women authors. Well, Geordie put me on to, through that book, uh, Elizabeth Harrower, for instance, who's Mm. just one of the most extraordinary novelists. Who who laboured in absolute obscurity because she arrived just before that moment where there was an upswelling of interest around the time of the, mm. the film renaissance that, mm. um, uh, that you were discussing. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was a pleasure for me and easy for me. And when I did uh, Best Australian Essays uh, last year and the year before, I just made a point of doing 50-50. It just seems like the reasonable thing to do. Mm. It's, it's like that crazy... It's like Trudeau talking about why are you making half of your ministry you know, uh, uh, available for women. He said, because it's 2016. <laughs> we should have yeah, the next uh, question. I think oh, Peter, sorry. We've pretty much agreed on... And the one thing about gender that I, that I always... Um, that I've thought for a number of years is... Um, and race as well. I really want to see Aboriginal film... Indigenous filmmakers making films about white people and women, women making films about men and men making films about women. I think... That's what I find interesting, and uh, the the idea that that only women can make films about women seems to me to be quite illogical, and uh, uh, you know it's a matter of perspective, uh, and I think uh, I don't think gender is irrelevant. I think it's highly relevant, and I think it it feeds into that idea of perspective, and I'm interested mm. in, I'm fascinated by the perspective that women have on men, and similarly that men have on women. Mm. I think it's great material, great raw material. Thank you. That was a really important question. I'm afraid we ran out the clock on it. Um, but, look, it's been tremendous having you. Thank you so much. And mm. thank you to our three critics. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2017. 
You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.